Well, every good story has a beginning. The beginning lays the foundation for the rest of the story to be built upon. And in the beginning of a story, we are introduced to the main characters. A hint of the plot line begins to unfold. The theme, what the work will be about. Subtle breadcrumbs are often dropped in the beginning of stories that will be picked up. Themes that will come later as the story unfolds to its climax and resolution. In Genesis 1, God lays a foundation for the rest of Scripture. In fact, I would argue you cannot understand the Bible if you do not understand Genesis 1. Miss Genesis 1 and you'll miss the point of the whole thing. In Genesis 1, God lays out the foundation for which God will call His people. Themes in Genesis 1 will be picked up in the Decalogue, the the Torah, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Like little breadcrumbs left in creation, God will pick these up and use them to display His redemptive plan for humanity. If you misunderstand Genesis, I think you'll misunderstand the rest. More importantly, not only will you misunderstand the story of Scripture, you'll misunderstand yourself. You see, not only in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 do we understand who God is, we understand a whole deal about ourselves, who we are. You see, knowing that God is your creator, that he made you, changes how you relate to him and how you relate to others. It is truly the foundation of life, of understanding, of society, of the ordering of humanity. God lays down the bedrock to which the rest is built upon. Genesis rightly is named after the the Greek word in the beginning, which is translated from the Latin Genesis, the beginning. It gives clarity about what the world is and points us to a better world that is coming. While God created this first world, he had always purposed to create a new world, a new creation that is far better than this one ever hoped to be. Now, as we begin to dive into this letter, I want to lay us some, uh, some boundaries. I want you to understand a few background points because I hope that you're going to be reading along with me. In other words, that you're going to be at home reading. So thankful for some of the uh, comments I've gotten as, as folks have been making their way through Genesis, uh, questions that they've, they've uh, sort of arisen from the text. That is awesome. <laughs> it's so encouraging to me uh, in, in preparation for this. And, and one of the things I want to do is give you some rules of the road, if you will, to understanding Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1 in particular is a very difficult passage uh, because, frankly, we try to make it say things that it's not meant to say. And so it proves itself to be difficult for some. Well, who wrote Genesis? Well, we're told that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Moses writing here the first five books of the the Old Testament, what we call the the law or the Torah. Uh, It contains God's word to his covenant people, the Israelites. And it is written to the Israelites. And it's, it's helpful for us to understand who wrote it and to whom it's being written. Because that will help us in our interpretation of the passage. In other words, you have to understand who the first readers were in order order for us to understand how it applies to to our lives 
This book was, was written uh, some 4,000 years ago uh, in, a, in a time which was very different than our own. An age that, that asked questions that were very different than the questions we ask today. Now, why was it written? Well, Moses wrote this in, under divine inspiration. In other words, this is God's inspired word, infallible word to his people. And it presents the history of the nation of Israel. It helps the, the Israelites to know where they came from, who they are, who God is. It sh- it's meant to show them that their God is greater than all the gods around them. Now, it's important to know the timing of when this letter was, or when this book was written. This book was written as the Israelites are leaving their captivity enslaved in Egypt and making their way through the wilderness into the promised land. More to the point, this letter is or this book rather is used by those in the Babylonian captivity to look back and to think about who their God is. It's so important for us to understand the sort of historical uh, reason this was written, for us to understand sort of the principles behind it, that then we can apply to our lives together as God's people. So, for example, imagine as the, the Israelites are leaving Egypt where they have spent 400 years worshiping the, the sun god to hear that there is a God who made the sun, who stands supreme over the sun. That the sun isn't some god to be worshipped, but it points to the god who created it. Or imagine in their Babylonian captivity, as they were surrounded by the idolatrous worship and the great power of, of Babylon, and to hear that there is a god, a sustainer, who is greater than even the great Babylonian empire. That would have reassured them and given them hope to know that their god is greater than any other god. You see, as we understand the, what God is unfolding here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we begin to understand all of this is going to come up in the tabernacle, for example. That when God gives Moses the instructions to the tabernacle, that it is modeled after Eden. That all of the details in the tabernacle as one makes their way through is meant to, to resemble what was lost in Genesis 3. God's presence among his people. And what was being restored in the tabernacle was God's presence with his people. And then that foreshadows and points to a greater tabernacle when Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, listen, the dwelling place of God is with man and I'm here to dwell with you. And even his first coming, foreshadowing Revelation 22, when God again dwells with his people for all of eternity. Genesis 1 points to Revelation 22. How are we to interpret this book? I think it is important that we interpret it in a way that does it justice, but understands that there is now further revelation We need to understand that the Bible is written progressively over time, that there's more revelation, more light that came later. So if we were to just read Genesis 1 apart from the New Testament, we would have a synagogue sermon this morning. But we are going to read Genesis as if the New Testament is true, and it is, 
And that Christ has come and fulfilled all that was pointed to in Genesis. And so over the weeks ahead, we are going to think about this as its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We see this grand theme of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This is the narrative that the scriptures unfold. This is the story of the scriptures. Creation, fall, con- uh, redemption, God's plan to redeem his people that is ultimately concluded in Christ in Revelation 22. Now, as we d- dig into the text this morning, I want to sort of uh, deal with one issue on the front end because we're not going to deal with it again, and that is Genesis and science. We live in a day that asks questions that these readers weren't asking. And some of you today might be really frustrated because I'm not going to answer those questions. And the reason is, is because the text wasn't written to answer those questions. All right. So we're not going to get in the weeds on whether or not uh, this day that God created was a literal 24-hour days or did he create over a long period of time and all that kind of stuff. We're just going to go with what the text says and apply it to our lives. All right. And one helpful quote here, uh, one scholar uh, Dr. Wenham, he says this, modern man makes assumptions about the world that are completely different from those of the second millennium B.C. Consequently, when we read Genesis, we tend to grab hold of points that were quite peripheral in peripheral interest to the author. And we overlook points that are of fundamental importance. He concludes that Genesis must be read on its own terms, not ours. And so we want to read that. This account here this morning on the terms in which Moses wrote it, not on our terms in which we impose upon the text. To be frank, there is a lot about God's creation that is left out of the story. How did he exactly do it? What was it like before? uh, What was going on? How long did it take? All of these questions. Friend, this is what heaven's all about. When those we shall see not through a glass dimly lit but we shall see him as he is. Well, I'm going to read now from Genesis, if you haven't already. It's the very first book in your Bible. It should be easy to get there this morning. Just open to the very beginning. You might have to pull the pages apart. You know, the ones that are stuck together because you never open them. Maybe these are some of them. We're going to get some use out of this Old Testament. God writes, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to its own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the swarms, waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, living uh, livestock and creepy things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested from his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Well, if we were to summarize this, summarize this in this way. By his powerful word... And for his glory, the eternal triune God created an ordered world to be his good kingdom. Therefore, he alone is due our worship and obedience. By his powerful word, God spoke the cosmos into existence. And this earth was meant to be his good kingdom. This reveals that our God is a creator and a king. That the cosmos was his kingdom. The earth, his throne room. Where he was to dwell with man. Now we know in Genesis 3 all of this unravels. But right now we're going to say in Genesis 2. 
and see the goodness of God's created order. To see how God created. And so the purpose of our time is really just know this God. Know this is who God is. And then learn some things about ourselves this morning. So our passage teaches us, I think, three foundational truths about the eternal king who created this world. There's a lot to be said. I'm not going to go verse by verse and just sort of an unfolding verse by verse. But I want you to sort of pull out three principal truths that we learn in this passage. Number one, God is the sovereign king who created by his powerful word. It was by his powerful word that he created. And second, we see that God is the sovereign king who created an ordered creation. An ordered creation. And I want you to see that all of this is meant to display order. God created order out of chaos. Third, God is the sovereign king who created a good kingdom. That all that God created was good, morally good and right and perfect. God created a perfect world with perfect people and perfect things. But as we'll see as the story unfolds, It didn't stay perfect for very long. First, we see in this passage that God is the sovereign king who created by his powerful word. God is the eternal king. Notice at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verses one and two really are the summary of what is about to unfold before us. That God is the creator As the Apostles' Creed begins, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. This is what we affirm the Bible teaches across the pages, across the thousands of pages that make up the Bible. There is this resounding affirmation and truth that God is the creator God. He created. And the verb that Moses uses here is only ascribed to God in all of the Old Testament. This one word, they they kind of uh, portioned off and said, we're only going to use this one verb to create for God, lest there be any confusion about what man creates and what God creates. God is the one who fashions the new, the fresh, and the perfect. And we see throughout this that he sovereignly reigns over his cosmos by his powerful word. Throughout the text, we see uh, in verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, you can see them. You see them? What does it It repeats, right? And God said, and God said, and God said. If you counted them up, there's 10 of them. Number of perfection. But a number that will ultimately foreshadow the giving of the law as God lays out in 10 words in the Decalogue that God declares these truths. Throughout this, we see that God uh, has authority to name his creation. Notice, uh, for example, you could look at the very beginning when God created light. In verses 3 and 4, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from day. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There's examples all throughout this about God naming Certain aspects of his created order. All of this is to point to the fact that he sovereignly reigns over his cosmos. 
He's making clear who he is. More than that, you, you heard that refrain throughout. I hope you, you picked up on it, a repetition. And it was so. Well, Moses isn't just like, you know, repeating himself for repeating himself's sake. He's emphasizing something. And it was so. And it was so. And it was so. So each part, God is creating something and it happens. In other words, Moses is emphatically making clear that when God says something, it comes into creation. We've all seen sort of, uh, maybe, maybe some of us, the majority of us, uh, sort of funny commercials. One in particular um, was the little boy uh, dressed up in, in the little uh, Darth Vader outfit, and he's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, doing stuff magically, right? He thinks, right? He does something, and it happens, right? It's a cute little picture, right? But we know how many of us as kids didn't just sit there and say, like, oh, I hope that door would open, or, you know, do silly things like that, right? Because we want the ability to like speak things into existence, right? We want to be able to, like, if we say it, it goes. But with God, it does. There is something marvelous about this whole thing. You know, again, we have these scientific minds. We put them on and we're like, oh, well, I want to know, like, exactly what did he do to create light and da-da-da-da-da. Friend, if that's where you're at, you're missing the marvel of the whole thing. He said it and it happened. I don't know how it happened. I know that there's a reason it happened. And, and that reason is God. He spoke. And, 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 and this is not. And, and don't miss the point. I'll make this point emphatic in the next point. But because it's a created order, science can discover the beauty of how it happened. Okay. Uh, there, 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 there's an order to creation. All right. We don't want to miss the wonder of the fact that our God is omniscient. His all-knowing power and knowledge is revealed to us in the created order as he speaks these things into existence. He does it by speaking. Marvel at the fact that God doesn't, isn't said to use his hands or his feet or some sort of other body part. He doesn't call together the angels. There's no, there's no mention of angels here. You don't know when they were created, maybe before this, after this. You don't know. I think the point remains is God is the one doing it without anyone's help or assistance. He is the one who has authority over his creation, and he did so by his word. You see, his word will become a central theme, not only of this chapter, but of the rest of the Bible. When God speaks, things happen. God speaks and people are created. God speaks and a nation is created. When God declares something to be so, it happens. Of course, as we fast forward our Bibles, we begin to see how God unfolds through the speaking of his word. We see that our God is a speaking God. In fact, it was the one thing about God that, that sort of put him up against all the other gods, right? He often would, would tell the prophets, hey, just encourage the people to have their idols speak back and see how that goes. It was, it was laughable. These idols were mute idols, right? But God was the ever-speaking God. He was the one who opened his mouth and revealed himself in word. 
As the psalmist says in Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. In the beginning was the word, John says. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was anything made that was made. The divine Lagos was the agency in which God used to form and fashion his world. We see here in the text, uh, the spirit of God, verse 2. The earth was without form and dark was, darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see that our triune God was involved in the created order. We see hints at this, though. We, we know that God reveals himself as a mono, single God. And this is true. There is only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see another allusion to that in verse 26 that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's word is powerful. That's the point we want to see. That God alone is worthy of our worship. Now as you think about this, as the Israelites would have been hearing this about God, how it would have encouraged them and given them hope that their God was the one who created the world, and the cosmos. That, that he created them by his word. That he fashioned them by the agency of his powerful word. That his word alone was the word that created order out of chaos. This would have informed their worship. They would have seen God as the king whom they were to answer to. And this particular point about God being king would show up later when the Israelites cry out, give us a king. One of the greatest slaps in the face to God was when they rejected him as king and went another way. The point is clear. We could go through line by line of this, but I I hope you see the overarching point is that God created This world. God formed this world. He made this world. And he created it in an orderly way. And this is the second point I want us to see. Is that God is the sovereign king who created an ordered world. Notice here. Look with me again. Verse 2. That the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see here in verse 2. That, that prior to God speaking the, the, the earth into existence. That there was chaos. The earth was without form and void. It was formless. It was chaotic. It was an empty wasteland. And what God begins to do in the unfolding days, is to set his creation in order. God created light first. Then he created the next, then the heavens. God created in a certain order. Some might question here, if you look at verses 9 through 10, and then verses 11 uh, through 12, and you see, okay, there's earth. Okay, that makes sense. And then he creates plants and animals. Okay, that makes sense. Well, wait a minute, time out. But I thought plants and animals, like plants needed like light to be able to grow. How is it they were growing without light? He doesn't create, you know, the sun until day four, you know, or day uh, 
Yeah, day four. What's, what's going on here? I think Moses' point isn't to answer that particular question, but to demonstrate to you and to I, and first and foremost to the nation of Israel, that God created orchard in his creation. Notice here this sort of constant in, in day three in verses 11 through, through 13. You see that he says that he created each according to their own kinds. You see that re- repetition according to their own kinds. Then on day four, you see this sort of order. You've got one ruling the day, one ruling the night. In other words, the sun doesn't like just do its own thing. The moon doesn't do its own thing. There, there's a plan into what they're to be doing. You see, also then in day, day four, there's, there's days and months. There's an ordering together there in verse 14. There were signs for the seasons, for the days and the years. There is order to how God fashioned his creation. As we step back for just a moment, I just want to point out one thing there as we're real close to verse 16. Um, God made the two lights, the greater to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night. <laughs> And then Moses has this sort of like just this little aside. Oh, and he, he created stars too. You know, you know most uh, scientists, you know, as they study the, 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 the universe, billions of stars, right? It was just sort of like this, yeah, those stars, he, he put those up there too. It was as if that was like just nothing for God to do. He put the stars. The point remains that you see there's order to God's creation. God creates certain species on day five. And more importantly, you see, when God created man, he created an order to his creation. Now, we'll dig into this a little bit more next week in chapter 2 as God just sort of goes back over day 5 again for us. Or day 6, rather. But we see here that God created male and female. Friend, as you think about the culture we live in today, it is very confused about this particular point. It is helpful to have Genesis 1 to think about. When you see our society generally confused about gender, what's a male, what's a female, and the confusion about this, for you and I as Christians, we want to think about this from this worldview that is presented in Genesis 1, and that is an ordered creation. That God made men and women that both equally display his image. That helps us in conversations in gender, helps us in conversations about inequality. It helps us in conversations as we think through roles and responsibilities. You see, all of this is grounded in the creation mandate, not in the fall. You see... It would really be confusing if God said all these things after the fall. In other words, that gender roles came up in the fall. No, gender roles are a part of God's original design when he created. So we want to be clear on those as Christians. We want to understand where this is coming from. In a world that often feels chaotic, we can be reminded in this passage that God brings order out of the midst of chaos. Friends, do you feel like your day is chaotic? I mean, if you think about it this morning, you could, maybe someone in here is so worried that some asteroid is going to come blast our planet out of the solar system. God reigns over chaos. 
The point that, that, that Moses is, is trying to forward in their minds is, is it may feel chaotic in your life, but there is a God greater than the chaos who speaks order and creates order. The point is clear. If God is able to set things in order, then he must have supreme authority. He must be the one who all others answer to, even myself. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is what we believe is the very heart of our sin problem, is the issue of authority. We live in a world that doesn't like authority. For the last couple of weeks, our nation has been drugged through the uh, proverbial mud because of confusion over who has authority and how to use that authority. You see, if you're suspicious about authority, if you see authority, all authority as inherently evil, then you must think God is evil. You see, fundamentally, when you struggle with authority, when you see children rebelling against parents, friend, all that is is a, is a sort of a reflection of man's rebellion against God and his good and right authority. Friends, that's not to say that there is uh, not examples of bad authority and abuses of authority. In fact, what makes abuses of authority so heinous is because authority can be directly connected to God. So when a father has authority, or you as a parent have authority, or when a husband leads his wife in exercising headship over his wife, all of that is reflecting of God's character. So when you mess that up, you are casting dis disdain against God. But authority is good. We see God's good authority here in that he creates order that you and I are to submit to. The ordering points us to a creator who reigns as a king sovereignly over his creation. That he is the one who gets to decide what a flower is and what a fly is. Not us. He's the one that defines what a male is and what a female is. And this leads us to our third point in conclusion. God is the sovereign king who created a good kingdom. Throughout the creation, you see this constant refrain, and it was good. Beginning in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. As he goes down through there, earth is good. Next day as he creates creation, the plants, the animals, it was good. He creates the lights in the day. He says it's good. It's as if God, you know, he created it and he steps back and he looks at it. That's good. On down. God's kingdom was a good kingdom. He saw that it was good. Now, I want you to notice here the, the sort of climactic event. Now, to be clear, day six is the climax of the creation. The creation of man and woman. Humanity was the climax of God's creation. And he saw that it was good. Or excuse me, verse 31. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
As God looked back on his creation, he saw that it was good, it was right, everything was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. There was no flaw in it. There was nothing, there was no malfunction in it. There was nothing that was going to break down, wear out, grow old. It was good. It was right. It was good and right because it was a reflection of his own character. This is what we see in God's affirmation in verse 26 that let us make man in our image after our likeness. Humanity is impressed the image of God. We reflect God's good character. We are relational beings, communicating beings, because this is what God is. He is a communicating God. He is a relational God. And we see that his kingdom is good and right. And he invites us into this kingdom. He created us to reign and rule with him as vice regents over this creation. But as we are to understand Genesis, I think the point must remain that we have to see that creation was meant to be a kingdom where the king would reign. The problem was that we wanted to be king. We got too much and we we wanted more. It was not enough for Adam and Eve to be vice regents uh, and other working. They needed to have all authority. They couldn't handle it. They're like, no, we want to have all authority. But the original intended order we see here in the passage in verses 26 and on is that mankind was to be vice regents over God's creation. Notice here in verses 26 and following that God gives them authority. God didn't have to give them authority, but he did give them authority. He gave humanity authority. There in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves. He gave them dominion. They were to subdue the earth. They were to bring it under their control. They were to use it. For their own benefit. We see this is the way that God blessed them. When God blesses them, he makes them fruitful. In fact, this connection between fruitfulness and multiplying and reproducing was intimately connected to God's blessing of them. Being fruitful and multiply will be a refrain throughout. As God recreates the world through Noah, the very first thing he says to him is be fruitful and multiply. Or when he makes a covenant with Abraham, he makes emphatically clear that connected to the Abrahamic covenant is this this seed that is to be multiplied. We were to reflect God's good rule in creation by caring and ruling over creation with him because we were created in his likeness the creation would know that we were his representatives that we spoke on behalf of him we see God's purpose clearly before us that we were to rule on his behalf and to care for his creation Well, friends, the creation mandate still remains today. Though the world has fallen, God has given us authority to have dominion, to rule over this creation. We are to care for God's creation. We are to care for the things God has made. 
we are to think about that in the context of natural resources and how we use them and how we pollute and care for them. All of those things Christians should think about from this worldview. That yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, God is creating a new world. But we are to care for this world as vice reasons of it. Again, Wenham is helpful here when he says, man created in the divine image is expected to imitate God in his daily life. How far he conforms to this ideal is the story, not only of Genesis, but of the rest of Scripture. God is here portrayed as a benevolent creator, concerned for man's welfare. Creating man in his own image, blessing him and giving him instructions. That man can enjoy fellowship with God, obey him, and be blessed by him are the presuppositions of all of the subsequent narratives in Genesis. Everything is about man being created in God's image, and then displaying that through their obedience of Him. Things like the sanctity of human life, dominion and care over creation, over natural resources, how we steward these things, are all things that you and I as Christians should use this passage to think well through. That God has called us, that our life is valuable and meaningful, that we stand above the rest of creation ones who are to provide and care for it. The point is clear. By his powerful word and for his glory alone, God created the cosmos. Therefore, we are to obey him, submit to him, and follow him. We've learned these truths, I hope, that lay the foundation for the way forward that God is a sovereign king who will create a people for his own glory. God is going to unfold the eternal plan he had that will be realized in Christ Jesus that God has a particular people that he hopes to redeem from humanity and that he will be their king and they will be his people and that he is creating a new creation, an even better creation than the first. that will be realized in the new heavens and the new earth. As Christians, this is what we anticipate is the creating of all things new in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that we would know you better, that you are the one who has authority over us, that you are our creator. Therefore, you are the one alone that has authority to tell us how we are to live, what we are to do. You mark out our days from beginning to end. You sustain us for you made us. You provide for us in ways that we don't even see or realize. And now, Father, I pray that we would see and worship you as the triune creator God, maker of heaven and earth, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.